In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm excited to start a new sermon series this morning. And we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians, a book of the Bible that you may not have heard preached very much. I know I haven't in my life. And so as I was looking at some options, I landed on 1 Thessalonians and going to go through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Lord willing, in the next few months. So if you'll turn there, we'll dive into our text in a moment. It's, it's a good reminder, I think, every so often for us to, to think about life and the fact that we are not, we're not guaranteed another day, are we? We just don't really know. We're thankful to be here this morning. We're thankful to wake up this morning. That's a good prayer every day, isn't it? Lord, thank you for waking me up today. We don't really know, but the scripture does tell us a couple things for sure. One, Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed unto man once to die. So one thing we know for sure is that we all will die. Our days are numbered. But a second thing the scripture says, and we're going to see it in 1 Thessalonians, is that Christ is coming back. He will return. And so, one way or the other, even either we will die and leave this world, or Christ will return first, one way or another, our days on this earth, in this life, are limited. And so the question to be asked as we start the study of 1 Thessalonians that I want to just pose to us is, how are we going to use the days we have left? Are we going to spend our days, whether it's one more day or thousands of days left, are we going to spend our days serving Christ the way he wants us to and has called us to? Or are we going to spend our days just kind of going through the motions of normal life? Or are we going to be followers of him? And so in 1 Thessalonians, I think we're going to see some things that will guide us and help us along this journey. All right, are you there? 1 Thessalonians, you heard us read chapter 1 earlier. I studied chapter 1 all week, most of the week. And then I decided on Friday night to change my text to simply one verse, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1. If you're there, say word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. I want to welcome you and introduce you to this letter that I'm guessing most of us have probably read parts of it, but have not heard it in its full context. And so I want to share with you today this first verse, and we'll reference some other verses as we kind of introduce it to ourselves, kind of get a little accustomed to this, this letter. So the first question we need to ask, and I have six questions to ask this morning. The first one is, who wrote this letter? We see three Names mentioned, right, in the first verse, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. We know who Paul is, right? That one who was infamous, persecutor of the church, met Christ in Acts chapter 9, and became 
the greatest missionary in the early church, who spent his time going around, starting churches, preaching the gospel. We know Paul. How about Silvanus? Well, we know him mostly by another name, Silas. Silas was a man of God and a, an assistant or an associate, if you will, of Paul, who traveled with Paul on this second missionary journey and did ministry. And then, of course, we're also familiar with Timothy. Uh, the next two books of the Bible after Thessalonians are First and Second Timothy, which is letters written from Paul to Timothy. Timothy was this younger man, this protege, if you will, of Paul, and also a man who's very pivotal in this whole letter of the Thessalonians. And so we're familiar with this, and I think it's interesting to note as we look through the, this study this, this, in the coming months that Paul, who writes this, often uses the word we. So let's look at a couple of examples. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, or in this case he used the word our, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were, we were among you for your sake. Go to chapter 2 and look at verse 2. Again, notice he's speaking as in the term of we, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. If you look through verses 4, look at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 2. But as we were, as we were allowed of God to be put in trust for the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. I just gave you a few examples there, but we're going to see, and I want you to notice that as the Apostle Paul writes this, Silas and Timothy are also involved with this ministry. But notice chapter 5, verse 27. Chapter 5, verse 27. He says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle or letter be read unto all the holy brethren. And so reading this, even though there are three names at the beginning, we know and we believe that this was written by the Apostle Paul. That one who had that apostolic authority in the early church and in today, even today through this word. Number two, second question. Who received this letter? The second part of this verse says, to the church of the Thessalonians, right? That's a word we don't say very much, but I want you to see this story. Uh, if you want to look, you can. It's in Acts chapter 17. Such an interesting story of how the church in Thessalonica started. So what the Apostle Paul would do is he would travel around and when he would come to a new city to preach the gospel there, to preach the good news of Christ, he would go to the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, take the scriptures and preach the gospel. And he would say things like, Christ was, died for your sins, God rose Christ from the grave. He is your Messiah, follow him, believe in him. And he would preach the gospel to these Jewish people in the synagogues. And in Acts 17... Him, Silas, and Timothy are in this city called Thessalonica. It was a large city, 
a port city in what is now Greece, and a very pagan city, but they were there, and they're preaching the gospel, and it says for three Sabbaths in a row, three weeks in a row, they go and they preach the gospel, and some people believe. And so in Acts 17, 4, it says some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Gentiles and many of the women. So men and women, Jews and Gentiles, hear the gospel, and we don't know how many, but a great many, it says, a group of people believed in the gospel and followed Christ. So immediately after this, in verse 5, it says this, But many Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And so we have this story here, in Acts, and it keeps going if you want to read it in Acts 17, 10 through 15, where this mob of Jewish people who are against what Paul's preaching, against Christ, they basically start this riot. They go to this man's house, this man's house named Jason, a disciple, and he's trying to kind of take care of Paul. And they're like, no, we, we, want, we want him. And, and they're, they're, again, angry toward Paul and toward Christ. And so the, the believers in Acts 17.10 decide to take Paul and Silas and send them west to a town called Berea. So they go to Berea and they preach there and more people become believers. Not long after that, the same mob leaves the city of Thessalonica, goes to Berea, and they start giving Paul a hard time there. Very dangerous time, a time of heavy persecution. And so the believers are trying to decide, do we, do we keep Paul here? He's the missionary, he's starting churches, we need him. But it might be safer for him to go somewhere else right now. And so they put him on a boat, they send him down the shore to a place called Athens, and, also, and eventually ends up in Corinth. And so he's in Corinth where he actually stayed for, I think, a year and a half in Corinth doing ministry. But as Paul is in Corinth, you have to know he's thinking, what's going on back in Thessalonica? <laughs> you know, what, what's going on back in Berea? What's going on in these other cities where I've gone and I've started churches, I've preached the gospel, people have believed in the gospel, and now I move on and I don't even get to know how things are going with them. Do you think Paul's concerned about that? Yeah, of course he is. As a pastor, and, and I've been a pastor you know, for 20 years now, you know, I think often about people I used to minister to and wonder how they're doing. My very first uh, ministry position, I guess you'll say, as a youth pastor in McCall, Mississippi, I had this group of, I don't know what you call them, just street kids. And I still think about those kids on a regular basis. And I wonder, how are they doing? I've only been able to locate a couple on one, really, on Facebook. How are they doing? Those who claimed Christ then, are they still following Christ? And like I so said, I care about that. And so I know the Apostle Paul cared about that. Of course, he wasn't able to get on Facebook, was he, and see what's going on. Here's what he did, though. He was able to send Timothy. Timothy, I'm going to stay in Corinth. I'm ministering here. You go to Thessalonica, and you see what's going on with the church there. Timothy goes. Timothy comes back. Timothy says, here's what's happening in the church. They're disputing a few things. They're disputing what's going to happen when, when Christ's return. And so in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see the return of Christ. So if you're interested in the second coming of Jesus, and I know many people are, we're going to mention it in the text, and then we're probably going to discuss it more seriously even on Wednesday nights. But it's in every chapter. Why? 
there are people in Thessalonica, probably some believers had died, and they're wondering, did they miss the second coming of Christ? Like, how is that going to work? And so he gives them instruction. Timothy says there's some believers dealing with some other types of sin, and Paul covers those in this letter. Timothy says some, many of them are doing pretty good. They're following Christ even in affliction. And Paul's going to uh, write and say, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful to God for you that you're following Christ. And so Timothy comes back and reports, and Paul writes, as inspired by God, he writes this letter and sends it back to them. So why would I take 10 minutes or however many minutes that was to give you all this history? To me, the history is actually very interesting. To some of you, I know it is. But here's what I want you to see from this, is that this, we believe, really happened, right? In a real place, which by the way, this city still exists today. It has a different name, but it still exists. In a real place, in a real time, 2,000 years ago-ish, only a few years after Christ lived and died. And so this happened to a real group of people in a real place, in a real time. And to me, that, that, that's important because we want to find out what, if we're going to appreciate what this word means to us this morning and the next few months, we need to understand what it meant to them. Because I'm going to tell you a secret. What this word meant to them is the same thing it's going to mean to us. There's not a new meaning for us that they didn't have. What God intended for these people to see and know, he intends for us to see and know. So who, is the, who received this letter? the church in Thessalonica, but listen, over the next few months, we are going to, in a sense, receive this letter. And I pray we'll do that with open hearts. Number three, I wanted to mention this because we're talking about the church in Thessalonica, and so who is the church? Is the church one group of believers meeting in a home or one group of believers meeting in one building? Who is the church? Well, we know that the word church is the word ecclesia in the New Testament. It means an assembly of those who are called out, the called out ones. And so what we see in, the, in Thessalonica is this smaller group of new believers, small group of new believers who are going through affliction, through some trials. Again, Paul was persecuted. Uh, a man named Jason there was persecuted. So you know these believers were experiencing affliction and persecution. But I want you to see that the word church can refer to a group of believers in one house. We see that in Scripture. The word church can focus on a group of people in a region. And the word church can also be used to talk about all believers in all times. Like, for example, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The word church can speak of what's called the universal church. So, this particular letter is written to this church in Thessalonica, this new group of believers who are going through much trial, surrounded by pagan cults and culture, false gods and sin. And they're trying to be the church God's called them to be. And God sends this church, this letter, to help them. So number four, fourth question of six, why write this letter. I've already kind of mentioned this, but look at chapter 2, verse 17. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. Paul writes and says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, 
endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. In other words, he says that our time with you was too short. We wanted to say and teach you the word and disciple you and help the church have a strong foundation, but, but we, had to, we had to go, right? But we, we were with you in heart, right? You ever said that to somebody? I'm with you in spirit, right? My heart's with you, my spirit's with you. He says, we're with you in heart, but we can't be with you in presence, and we want to see your face with great desire. Look down in chapter 2, verse 7. I want to show you this verse. Chapter 2, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherished her children. Literally, literally, that means as a nursing mother cares for her child, that's how we want to care for you. Look in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children, that you would walk worthy of God who has called you into his kingdom and glory. Paul says here, we were like a nursing mother caring for you. We're like a father giving you instruction. What do those verses tell us about why he wrote this letter? Paul loved these people. He cared for these people. He wanted them to be, be, I almost said safe, but not necessarily safe. He wanted them to be well, but he wanted them to, more than anything else, progress in their faith, follow Christ, live out the calling of their salvation. Go to verse 18 of chapter 2. Wherefore, we would have come unto you. I wanted to come to you, Paul says. In verse 18 he says, again and again, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. I, I thought about that phrase for a minute this week. Like, what, what does that mean? Does that mean Paul's just dealing with just some spiritual forces? And, and obviously there's, Satan's always trying to hinder things of God's work. But so many factors. Like one factor is Paul needed to do work in Corinth. If you know anything about the church at Corinth, they had a lot of issues. And Paul spent, I think, like I said, 18 months there or so. And so Paul had work to do there. Paul couldn't be in two places at once, right? Um, there were travel logistics back in those days about why he couldn't necessarily come back. There were danger issues with persecution. And so for whatever reason, we want to be with you. I want to share God's word with you, but I just can't be there. Go to chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent Timothy to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. I hope you're seeing what I'm trying to say here, that Paul loved these people, cared for these people, started the church there, and even though he had to leave, He's checking back in on them and desires for them to know Christ. He wanted to encourage. Why did he write the letter? To encourage them and instruct them. You still with me? We're now getting to my favorite part. Number five. What does it mean to be in God? So, verse one. Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Here's my favorite part. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So a couple of things about this. First, notice two different persons of the Trinity. You heard in the children's sermon this morning, right? 
the Trinity, the triune God. Don't we believe in the Trinity? Do we? Yeah. God is three in one. We can't even fully understand it or explain it, but we believe it. The scripture teaches it. As a matter of fact, if you scan through verse one, chapter 1 right now, you will see God the Father mentioned, God the Son mentioned, and God the Holy Spirit mentioned. God, triune, three in one. As a matter of fact, if you look at this verse 1 here, when Paul uses the word Lord in front of Jesus Christ, when he says Lord, he is saying the divine one, deity. And so to the church of the Thessalonians who are in the Father and in God the Son. And so he's pointing out here the deity of Christ, which is so important for people in Paul's day. As a matter of fact, right, if you were in Paul's day and you said Jesus Christ is God, that's a big deal. That's the th kind of thing that might get you stoned or ran out of town. We can say that, in, you know, it's pretty easy to say around here, right? Jesus is God. And people might not agree, but we can say it freely. In Paul's day, the city of Thessalonica, that's not a popular statement. But I want to just remind us that the deity of Christ changes everything. If Christ was not God, then he would not be our Savior and Lord. But because Christ is God, we must listen to everything he says and obey everything he says because Christ is God. Colossians 1.19, I'll give you a couple of examples here. I know we believe these things, but for in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then Colossians 2.9, for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So what does it mean to be in God? What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, to discover this, I want you to go to chapter 5. To my two favorite verses in this entire study. And so I might end up referencing these along the way because I love these verses. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you to mark these in your Bible, highlight them on your Bible app, <clears throat> make a note of them, memorize them. One of my favorite pastors of all time who received a cancer diagnosis tells the story that he was in the doctor's office and he was told he had cancer and these verses popped into his head. And so during the worst time of his life, these two verses were precious to him. I've also heard of people using these at, at, with funerals and after losing loved ones. And so these verses are so encouraging. But they tell us what it means to be in God and in Christ. Let's break them down. First it says, for God has not destined us for wrath. So look at the word destined, which is predestined. And we see here, and we're going to see it in this book, that God is sovereign. That's one truth we're going to see in, in 1 Thessalonians. God is sovereign. And so look in chapter 1, verse 4. Knowing then, brethren, your election of God. We'll talk more about that probably next week. That God loves us and chose us before the foundation of the world. God decided before the foundation of the world that we would be in Christ and not experience wrath. We're destined not for wrath. We're destined 
for something better. So what is wrath? What are we not destined for? Wrath is the holy hatred of God towards sin. Wrath is the, God's wrath is his holy hatred towards sin. And God being holy must punish sin, right? He can't overlook sin. Sometimes with my kids, I tell them something, they break the rule, and I'm like, I don't feel like dealing with it, right? I'll overlook it. I'll overlook it this time. Can God ever overlook sin? What would happen if we sinned and God just overlooked it? That's not a big deal. What if God said, that's not a big deal, I'll overlook it. Is he still holy? Is he still righteous? Is he still God? Isn't that crazy? God must punish every sin because it is an infinitely terrible offense to his holy nature. And so he does, doesn't he? Every sin, one way or another, is punished. God's wrath is poured out to judge every sin. And I would say this to us to remind us something this morning. What's more scary than being judged in your sin by God and his wrath? What's more scary than the one the Bible calls a consuming fire seeing us in our sin and pouring out his wrath on us? We could not stand for even a millisecond, could we? But the scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, watch, God has not destined us for wrath. That's not for us. That wrath of God towards sin that we do deserve, God has made a way that we would not experience that wrath. So those who are in God, those who are in Christ, Instead of the wrath, look at the next part of the verse 9. We will obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. He became the substitute, the sacrifice, dying in our place. You see, the wrath that you and I should experience for all of eternity was poured out on Christ. That's why we sing, by the way. That's why we celebrate in song some of these songs we sing that talk about Christ taking our sin because he did it in our place if you were out there in the world and you were in danger this is an extreme illustration but if someone was going to take a gun out and shoot you and someone dove in front of the bullet and saved your life how would you feel toward that person you'd feel like you owed them everything right How much more do we owe Christ, who didn't just save our life, he saved our eternity. He died in our place, taking the wrath of God, being our substitute and our sacrifice. And look what it says, so that whether we are awake, which means alive, or asleep, which means dead, we will live with him. What a promise. I love these verses. I hope you're just looking at them. Go back to them. Kendall. Thank you. Look at these verses. God has not destined us for wrath, church, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we die or whether we live, we will live with him. Another theological truth we're going to talk about, um, and I know this is very interesting to many of us, is that the, the... study of the second coming of Christ. 
And we'll get there, not so much this week, but we'll get there in the coming weeks. But I want you to notice that both the work that Christ accomplished on the cross and his future return give us direction in life now. You see, the cross isn't just something that happened a long time ago that doesn't matter. It directs our lives even now, right? Because we're even told in in Luke 9 to take up our cross and follow him. You know, to take up the things that might happen in our lives and bear them as we walk with Christ. But we're also told that Christ will come again, and that also gives us direction. Look in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now watch this. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So we look back to his work on the cross, and that guides our life today. But look, church, we look forward to his second coming, and that also guides our life, because we have hope, and we eagerly wait his return. So in his first coming, Christ took our wrath, and in his second coming, he will shield us from wrath. Because when Christ comes back again, right, whichever theological camp you fall into on the second coming, we know at some point, everybody agrees in our circles, that those who don't know Christ will experience judgment, condemnation, and wrath, right? But Christ's second coming will shield us from that. So again, I'm still asking, what does it mean to be in God? What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, two things. It means, number one, to be in his eternal favor. In his favor. And I want you to think about this. Before the foundation of the world, Christ, according to Scripture, set his sight. God set his sight on us as his people. And he set his eternal favor on us before he even created Adam. And then when Christ was on the cross, God was setting his favor on us through the redemption of Christ. And then when God gave you a new heart and you believed in Christ, God set his favor on you. And then as you follow him now, God's favor is on you. And one day when Christ returns and all unbelievers are condemned, guess what? We will not be condemned, will we? Because we are in him. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What does it mean to be in him? It means to be in his eternal favor. Secondly, it means to be in his protection. Wrath will not consume us. Because Christ shields us from that. He's not destined us for wrath. The church at Thessalonica need to hear this, and we need to hear this. And this will, by the way, influence some of our end-time beliefs in some different ways, but we'll get there later. But he's not destined us for wrath. If we are in Christ. Are you in Christ? Have you turned from your sin, trusted in him, and are following him? My sixth and final question, and this is it, we're done. What does this greeting mean? Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
Did you know that in Paul's letters, I believe there's 13 of them, he begins them with these, these greetings and ends them with these greetings. And he, he usually begins with this, grace to you and peace, something like that. And he usually ends these greetings with grace with you and peace. And so just kind of noticing that, thinking about grace being God's undeserved favor and peace being what we have with God through Christ. We have peace with God through Christ. We have peace with others through Christ. I wonder if, if Paul is saying to these Thessalonians, though I'm not there with you now, I pray that God's grace will be to you as you read this letter. And that God's peace will be to you, that you'll hear it in this letter. And then as you finish the letter, that God's grace and peace would go with you. And so my prayer for us as we start this study, and I'm excited to preach this, and I know Jason will preach some of these sermons as well. I hope you will show up and hear these sermons. But my prayer is that as we begin it, that we can say, God, may your grace be to us as we read it. And then as we finish it, as we finish this study in the few month, next few months, may God's grace continue just to go with us. So we don't know how many days we have left, but I pray this study would direct us to be more faithful servants of Christ. So welcome to our study of 1 Thessalonians. Let's pray.